support for I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere comes from MX Publishing, with the largest catalog of new Sherlock Holmes books in the world. New novels, biographies, graphic novels, and short story collections about Sherlock Holmes. Find them at mxpublishing.com. And by the Wessex Press, the premier publisher of books about Sherlock Holmes and his world. Find them online at wessexpress.com. And from listeners like you, who support us through Patreon. Bonus material, thank you gifts, and more await at patreon.com slash I Hear of Sherlock. I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, episode 253, My Scientific Methods. I hear of Sherlock everywhere since you became astronomer. In a world where it's always 1895, comes I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. A podcast for devotees of Mr. Sherlock Holmes, the world's first unofficial consulting detective. I've heard of you before. You're Holmes the meddler, Holmes the busybody, Holmes the Scotland Yard jacket office. <laughs> the game's afoot as we discuss goings-on in the world of Sherlock Holmes enthusiasts, the bigger streeter regulars, and popular culture related to the great detective. As we go to press, sensational developments have been reported. So join your hosts, Scott Monty and Burke Walder, as they talk about what's new in the world of Sherlock Holmes. You couldn't have come at a better time! Hello and welcome to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast for Sherlock Holmes devotees where it's always 1895. I'm Scott Monty. I'm Bert Walder. And Bert, are you methodically preparing for this episode? Yes, yes. I'm studying my motivation. I'm trying to find out what motivates me and looking back into my past to find those emotional... Oh, wait a minute. That's the wrong method. Oh, no. Oh, there's a madness there somewhere. Uh, with everything I do, <laughs> yeah. yes, yes, oh, mm, always. <laughs> well, uh, we have a fine show ready for you today. It's an interview with Dana Richards, the editor of the latest book in the BSI Press uh, Professions series. Uh, of course, it's called My Scientific Methods, Science in the Sherlockian Canon. should be a fun exploration of a wide variety of topics and uh, we're really looking forward to this conversation with Dana. Before we do that, just a reminder, you can find the show notes for this episode at ihose.co slash ihose253. If you use all lowercase, ihose.co slash ihose253, that will get you to the specific page on ihearofsherlock.com with the show notes. We also have these links available in whatever app it is that you're listening to us on. We have uh, show notes and links, etc., uh, available there, but you can be certain to find them on the I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere website via that specific link. We'd encourage you to sign up for our email newsletter if you can. Uh, we have other things going on there besides the podcast. We have occasional updates uh, on things going on in the Sherlockian world that we don't cover here on the show. And uh, we also have uh, a link to our Patreon. Our Patreon supporters are eligible to listen to the show without ads. And uh, there you can also uh, choose a tier uh, where we have certain gifts available to you at the various tiers. And uh, you can help support the show. We also have additional content for 
our Patreon supporters as well, exclusive content that you can't get anywhere else. So we hope you take a look at that and uh, give it a shot. Dana Richards is a professor of computer science at George Mason University. His research interests include comparisons of protein sequences, Steiner tree algorithms, information dissemination in networks, parallel heuristics, methodology for computationally intractable problems, and parallel algorithms for median filters. He has strong interests in recreational mathematics and linguistics. Dana was a friend and biographer of the mathematics and science writer Martin Gardner. In 2006, he edited The Colossal Book of Short Puzzles and Problems, which collected all of Gardner's short puzzles in one volume. Since Gardner's death in 2010, events called Celebration of Mind are held every October, which include games, magic, and puzzles in the Gardner tradition, and Dana is frequently featured at these events discussing his life and work. He was also on the Martin Gardner Centennial Committee. Dana has published in a variety of Sherlockian publications over 40 years, including the Baker Street Journal and the Sherlock Holmes Journal, and he has most recently edited My Scientific Methods, Science in the Sherlockian Canon, published by the BSI Press. He received his investiture in the Baker Street Irregulars, the Priory School, in 2008. Dana Richards, welcome to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. I am pleased to be here. Now, this is your first time with us, and um, you've been involved in the Sherlockian sphere for quite a while, but why don't you take us back to when you first discovered Sherlock Holmes? Okay, that's pretty easy. Um, I was a graduate student getting my PhD at University of Illinois, and I looked in the bookstore and saw the uh, annotated Sherlock Holmes. So, unlike many people, I didn't graduate to it. That was what—that was the book that got me started. And the way I like to explain it to people is that uh, I was getting a PhD. I was working hard on research all day long. And here I read this book where everybody was doing research and having fun. So, it immediately appealed to me. Uh, because, you know, it, it just... It just put everything in the right perspective for me, that here's research, and it's fun, and, and luckily, in Champaign-Urbana, there was a Sherlock Holmes Society called the Double Barrel Tiger Cubs, and this is all back around 77 and 78 that I started, and uh, I went from group to group after that, writing lots of articles, and in general, having a good time. And when did you go through the canon? When did you read all of the Sherlock Holmes stories? Is that around the same time, or did you right, read around, them earlier? Around 78. Oh, I, I, I've been able to find the Sherlock Holmes book I owned uh, in grade school, but uh, I, I didn't have a deep memory of that. Uh, so I know I'd read it before, but it, it didn't stick until I read the annotated so uh, talk a little bit about your the, the research you were doing as a grad student at the University of Illinois. Oh, I'm a, uh, I'm a computer scientist, but I'm also a mathematician, so my work is very mathematical. Uh, I do what's called algorithms, and I analyze the runtime of algorithms. That's my research area. So uh, it's a great deal of fun because I try to explain to people that I've never worked a day in my life because analyzing algorithms is like solving puzzles. 
and I like puzzles, and and so I enjoy my work a great deal. And so I, I don't regard it as a job, just my own personal hobby, almost. Have you always been a puzzler? I've always been a puzzler, yes. And, uh, and I... Uh, Got into it seriously the summer after I um, graduated from high school because I was working at the Smithsonian and I bought some puzzle books in the Smithsonian bookstore and, and got to know through those the authors of those books and became very close. And I joined the National Puzzlers League in 1979. And so I've been a, deeply involved in the puzzle movement ever since. I didn't know there was a National Puzzlers League. Is it, is it anything like the Redheaded League? Or <laughs> <laughs> it's um, it was formed in 1883, and we we still do um, puzzles that were popular at that time, and and so we continued the tradition of puzzling. Uh, I have written an entire pamphlet about this called Sherlockian Puzzles and Victorian Enigmas. Uh, and I uh, and I explain how all these old puzzle styles from Victorian times are still being kept alive today. Well, how have puzzles changed over the years? This, this is intriguing to me because, you know, we think of Sherlock Holmes as a major puzzler, uh, puzzle solver, although his puzzles were in the form of mysteries. But when it comes to the actual consumption of puzzles by, say, the general public, the reading public, what's changed? What's the same? Walk us through that. Well, I did write an article for the Sherlock Holmes Journal on why Holmes would be a good puzzle solver. But to answer your question, um, uh, in Victorian times, most newspapers and magazines had a puzzle column. It was it was a very widespread thing. It it, it started. Well, there's a prehistory to it, but it really started in around 1850, and it's because the public had more leisure time, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, it was widespread, and the National Puzzles League grew out of this because they thought the puzzles that were being published in the popular press were a little too easy, and they wanted harder ones. And so they formed their own society to, to uh, circulate a, a more difficult version of what was in the popular press, but it was extremely common. I remember once telling uh, Peter Blau that this was extremely widespread, and he had on his lap, apparently, a um, an old Victorian magazine, and he opened it up, and sure enough, there was a puzzle column. So it's nice to be right sometimes. And, uh, <laughs> uh, so what so are your favorite puzzles? What are the things that you always do? Do you always do the crossword puzzle every day, or do you like Wordle or Sudoku, or are those two elementary for you? Well, I'm, I do Wordle. My average Wordle score is about three, so I, I enjoy that. Uh, uh, but Sudoku is pretty boring. Uh, there's a. It's hard to explain. Um, Sudoku is, of course, a math puzzle, and Wordle is a word puzzle. And... Um, word puzzles, the, the action is in, in math puzzles. That's where all the action is. The trouble is is that there aren't enough good mathematical principles for math puzzles to do them over and over and over again. Because if I open a math puzzle book, I can just leaf through the pages and say, I know, the, I know that one, I know that one, I know that one, I know that one. <laughs> And there's no there's no fun in solving them a second time. Uh, whereas word puzzles have the mysterious ability to keep you interested even after you do them over and over again because you know every crossword is a new challenge. Uh, and so I, I do a lot of word puzzles simply because there just aren't enough math puzzles to do. Hmm. And what what defines a math puzzle? I mean, I can't imagine every night you know you spend ten minutes on Fermat's last theorem. 
Um, no, no, it's um, uh, a good math puzzle, but it would be something like um, uh, pieces you can cut a donut into with three slices. Okay, and most people can't figure that out because it's 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 always one more than you think. It's some people can figure out how to get twelve pieces, but with a little bit of luck, you can get thirteen pieces, and so forth. And so so that's um so there that's it. You know, it can't be too simple. It's, it also can't be an exercise. You know, puzzles at one time hundreds of years ago were what we just call exercises today and those aren't terribly amusing uh, there's always has to be some sort of principle some sort of aha that that grabs your attention so you know math puzzles are like i say where the action is but uh but but uh i, I there's no way to have a steady diet of those so now we mentioned in your uh, introduction there that you are a biographer of Martin Gardner. Martin Gardner, of course, was a uh, popular uh, mathematics and uh, science writer, but he also had interests that ranged to the the literature side. He he was interested in Lewis Carroll and L. Frank Baum and uh, G.K. Chesterton. Did you find, as someone who also has an overlap in, in the world of literature, that the two of you uh, had a lot of conversations regarding Sherlock Holmes and, you know, the, the written word as well as the mathematical? Um, we had a lot to talk about. Um, I, I, I spoke to him many, many times. Uh, I got to the point where I would, would record our conversations, and I have like 80 hours of tapes of conversations with him because I, I kept saying to myself I should write all this stuff down. But no, he. Um, uh, or you should start a podcast. <laughs> no, I uh, uh, simply put his taste in fiction ran very much to fantasy. He liked fantasy. And so that's the reason he liked Carol and um, Chesterton and so forth. He didn't like Chesterton's polemics, but he did like Chesterton's uh, fantastic writings and things like that. And and he, he, he grew up on L. Frank Baum, and he, and he started the International Wizard of Oz Club in 1957, and and he also started the Lewis Carroll Society of North America in 1975. Hmm. So uh, so he he was active in these areas and promoting these, um, but uh, his taste ran to like I say fantasy fiction. He also liked uh, Lord Dunsany and uh, Cabell and people like that. Hmm. So yeah, he he and the thing about uh, him and that a lot of people may know but don't understand the scope of it is that his annotated Alice in Wonderland was his best-selling book. Wow. It's, it, it sold millions of copies. And he um, he invented the entire field of annotating uh, literature. There were no, he, his book was not based on any previous book, but all the pre, all the following books were based on his book. Okay, so for example, he was a friend of, of Baron Gould, and Baron Gould patterned his books on, on Martin Gardner's books, uh, and so on and so forth. So uh, everything is based on, on that one book. That's really fascinating. That, that, of course, came out in 1960. That came out in 1960, right. Yeah, and Baron Gould was working on things throughout the 60s before the annotated came out, I think in 67. Right, he had done the lure of the limerick first, and then he did... The annotated thing in '67, which came out just barely posthumously. Very neat. But they were friends, and and uh, and so that there's no accident there. 
I hadn't realized how close to the Sherlockian world Martin Gardner actually was. That's fantastic. Well, he grew up um, knowing John and ben, John Bennett Shaw. They were uh, knew each other in high school very well, and they kept they described each other as their best friend uh, until until the end. And so, uh, so they were very close, and 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 Gardner was invited to several um, Baker Street regular dinners in the forties and fifties, and uh, and so they, they 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 kept that up. But but Gardner did not pretend to be a Sherlockian, even though he wrote uh, several Sherlockian articles for to um, amuse his his friend. So, for example, in. Um, uh, the annotated Casey at the bat that Gardner wrote, he uh, he put Moorville in as as being uh, the prior name of Mudville. <laughs> Very cute. So so that they could have a, a reference there. So let's talk a little bit about your book here, My Scientific Methods. This is uh, one of the latest books in the Baker Street Irregulars Press Professions series. Yes. Um, we, we have, uh, obviously, Sherlock Holmes at the core here. And when, when Watson first describes Sherlock Holmes, he puts together uh, that very famous list of uh, Sherlock Holmes's knowledge. And he was kind of all over the place. I mean, he had um, really no interest in astronomy, but he was an expert in chemistry. Uh, he had kind of a uh, just a local jurisdiction uh, when it came to uh, geography. From your perspective, Dana, was Sherlock Holmes a scientist? Um, yes and no. I, I would. I could make. I could make the case that he was a scientist. Um, that's perhaps a pedantic exercise, but I could certainly make the case that he was a scientist. What, what, uh, you, what, what you have to understand: what, what differentiates a scientist from a non-scientist when it comes to somebody who has an interest in some of these fields? Well, I, I start the book off with a lengthy essay on on the history of science up to 1880, and uh, and I point out in there that the word scientist didn't even exist until 1834. All right, and so because there was no need to have a word for scientists, because there were no scientists, um, there were just natural philosophers and uh, and things like that, who dabbled in science and 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 had an inclination to do some types of things, but not others, and and there was no um, science was not taught at the universities, uh, even up through. Um, Holmes's time at the university, there was no major in science. There were no exams. There were no tests uh, of any sort about science. It was an extracurricular subject, and uh, and so it was a. So what science was in Victorian times is a good big is a big part of this book, and uh, and our our modern conception of science test leads us a little bit of astray in answering the question was. Was Sherlock a scientist? Scientist. So, uh, but did he have the right viewpoints? Did he use the scientific method, etc.? All of these things can be argued, but the point is that relative to what other people were at the at that time, uh, he wasn't a Faraday. He wasn't Darwin. He wasn't one of these people who who did excel during this this time period. But but he was in the league of of the second echelon of a scientist at that time. Yes, very much so. Well, it's, it's fascinating, and I have to say, one of the things I was very grateful for 
in this book is exactly the focus you're talking on be, about, which is the state of science, you know, up through the early, the mid, mid to late Victorian period, because so many modern commentators, it always irritates me when I see a modern commentator who looks at the beliefs of Arthur Conan Doyle or some of the forensic work that goes on in the cases of Sherlock Holmes and dismisses it out of hand. And they dismiss it out of hand because they're referring to contemporary, modern, 20th, 21st century thought, as opposed to really understanding the state of science in the late 19th century. And I think it's so important. But also, right. as you point out, science evolved. You know, one of the greatest alchemists in the world was Newton. You know, so you look at science and mathematics and the amount of time Isaac Newton devoted to alchemy, you know, you realize that for a large part of civilization, these things were sort of blended together and, and scientific discipline didn't really emerge in a big way until the 19th century, did it? Not a bit. And uh, uh, so, but um, but the precursors are all there. If you want to talk about chemistry, you have the precursor of alchemy. And if you want to talk about geology, you have the precursor of... Um, of the people who would, um, you know, the what, what we called practical geologists, people who would go out and try to figure out where oil was, and so forth, and uh, and they did it. You do it based on on any theory of geology. It's just it was just best practice, and 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 as people tried to refine best practice, they found more and more principles. They found more and more. Um, uh, invariants, as they would like to call them, I suppose. But they, yeah, it was a, obviously an evolutionary process. Uh, it, no one woke up one day and said, we're going to invent geology. And so all, all of the disciplines have their own prehistory. Uh, and, and during that prehistory, they never thought of them as science. Self them never thought of themselves as scientists. The word science, of course, is much older and, and simply means organized knowledge at one point in time. It had meant different things at other points in time. Now, one of the things that's always fascinated me, and I think it uh, certainly the irony does not escape anyone who has followed the career of uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, you know, he gave the world this uh, man of science, this man who, uh, you know, relied on the scientific method, really introduced the scientific method to many practices of uh, the police force and detection. And yet Conan Doyle himself uh, almost reverted into pseudoscience by the end of his career with his belief in spiritualism. Uh, how, how do you square that? Okay, well, before I answer that question, I do want to point out, because of my association with Martin Gardner, I, uh, he was considered, amongst his other roles in life, the dean of modern skeptical movement. <laughs> All right. He he wrote the he wrote a very famous book in the 1950s, and as a result, after that, he wrote hundreds of articles about pseudoscience. And so I'm deeply influenced by by reading all of his articles. And so I'm a very skeptical person, et cetera, et cetera. And so it would be easy for me to uh, disparage Doyle in this respect. But I need to uh, answer that question. I think by alerting you to a article I wrote that you probably will never see. It's in an old volume I published. Uh, 30, 40 years ago called The View Halloo. And in that, I wrote an article on Doyle in the Land of Odd, O-D, in which I explain that he had written uh, in the Journal of British Photography an article disparaging pseudoscience. 
Hmm. All right. And uh, he suppressed that in the sense that he never mentioned it again for the rest of his life, especially after he became more pseudoscientific. Uh, but in that article, he disparages. I mean, he is he is he is ruthless in attacking a pseudoscientist, saying how unscientific it was, and so on and so forth. So so Doyle definitely started out being very scientific. I want to, I hasten to add at the risk of insulting somebody that science, uh, doctors are not scientists. Okay, doctors have their own skill set, but they don't do science. They benefit from science. They might even contribute to science, but they are not scientists. And Doyle wasn't a scientist either, uh, though he understood science and in and, and this early article I mentioned does demonstrate that quite quite clearly and um, so so he wasn't a scientist but he was scientifically literate and all of that was true so the question is why did he uh, adopt a stance in, in favor of pseudoscience at the end and boy would that be a wouldn't it be wonderful if I could answer that question for you? Well, fortunately for you, Mike Homer has attempted it in your book. Yes, he um, has. It, and and he really explores, uh, you know, the, the totality of Conan Doyle's career and uh, takes us through his interest in what he calls theosophy, uh, kind of the, the, uh, the collision of... Um, Theocratics and philosophy. Well, theosophy also is basically is a, is a pseudo Eastern religious um, slash scientific hmm. um, thing. It's almost religious. Yeah, and I, I, I think this is this this chapter alone would be worth uh, the purchase of the book. So um, let. Let's let's leave that there for uh, otherwise interested parties. Well, no, I just just meant to, to sing the praises of of Homer. Uh, he has for many years written about. Um, topics, and I, I have great respect for him. He used to write at one time about uh, Doyle's propaganda during World War II, and also about the pseudoscience and so forth. So he's a he's a, a broad has a broad background, and, and he writes very well. And he has a, a standing interest in these pseudoscientific matters. And I think he had a very balanced essay. It would have been easy for uh, him to be more openly critical, but he I think he wrote a very fine essay indeed. Uh, uh, and there is a second article in the in the volume about pseudoscience as well, uh, just in case uh, you want to get uh, exploring the edge of the unknown um, by Mark Mark Jones and Paul Chapman also explores this, but mainly from the viewpoint of uh, that article explains explores his interest in pseudo Doyle's interest in pseudoscience as reflected in his other fiction articles. Or stories, or whatever. So yeah, there's we we cover that topic in two ways. Mm. Well, you know about Doyle. I really do think we need to give him a bit of a pass. I mean, in World War One, he lost his brother, he lost his son, he lost two brothers-in-law, he lost two nephews in World War One, yeah. and he grew up in death. You know, he was one of ten children, I think, eight whom survived. Some some number like that. So, you know, nothing, nothing will stimulate your interest in life after death than losing a large number of your, your family members and wondering if there's, if there's anything that's continued that you can still contact them. Well, uh, it's... Now, I'm only speaking about that, you know, in the context, again, in the context of 
the 19th century, not not in any, not certainly not in my personal beliefs. I've sure. never gotten <laughs> never gotten a birthday card from any of my departed <laughs> relatives. Well, Doyle's interest in this is is problematic, and and I haven't heard anybody say anything that made sense to me in the following sense. I mean, clearly after his father died, soon thereafter he joined uh, uh, one of the national. Uh, parapsychology groups but he did nothing with that he wrote nothing he spoke about it nothing he you know and he you know he writes about everything correct so so he wrote nothing about it for years and years decades and then he started to write now i personally and no one there's no reason anybody should believe me on this i personally believe his interest in this is is due to the fact that a woman whose name I should remember but I've forgotten who was in the uh, Conan Doyle household and a friend of of of, of the wife uh, convinced the wife that she was psychic, and I believe that woman is through pressure on his wife is what caused him to express a uh, belief in this. Uh, even if he had a predilection to it before, I, I think he would never have said anything if it wasn't for that. That's my own personal take on the the uh, history. That was all around 1914 that he did this, long before his son died and things like that. Yeah, interesting, interesting. It's amazing the things that spouses make us do. Yeah, that's right. Okay, but 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 I can't find too many people who agree with me on this. I don't know of anybody who actually disagrees. Most people just throw up their hands and say they don't know how he came to have these strengthening beliefs at this time in his life. But um, but so it's easy to make up theories about what caused him to have strengthening beliefs. So I don't yeah. I, I don't want to say much more about it because it's just my own yeah. pet, pet theory. Yeah, no, it's and not it's not pet. mentioned in the book. Yeah, it's not a bad theory. I mean, I would point out just that, you know, to, I think it's a good idea to move on, but just to point out, the Society of Psychical Research, which Conan Doyle participated in, mm. also had someone as president named Arthur Balfour, who went on to become the, the Prime Minister of England. So so this was this was not really, you know, as, uh, as outrageous a thing as it looks to us in the 21st century. Many, many... Uh, people's names who we recognize were involved in the movement, no doubt about it. Yeah. Now, speaking of the movement, one of the things that the general editor of the series, Marsha Pollock, points out in her introduction here is that you had the idea for this book back in 2016, which you suggested to Mike Keane, who was then co-publisher of the BSI Press. Okay, so I can tell you that story. We tell yeah, what is that story, and what was your original idea? Well, I walked up um, to them. I think it was at the Chautauqua uh, outing, and I went up to. Them, I said, "I know what your next volume is going to be," because they had just published one on uh, the in the professional series on doctors, and they published one on lawyers. And said, so as sort of jocularly saying, "I know what the next one's going to be. The next one's going to be clergy." Because historically, those were the three professions for almost a millennia. Okay, those are the only three professions. So I and he said, "Nah, no one will care about that." <laughs> and then I said, uh, oh, "Well, I, I think you should do it." But in any event, they still haven't done that. But I said, after you do that one, you should do one on science. Okay, because again, because it was formed as a profession around 1834, and uh, or attained some professional recognition at that time, that I thought that would be, his, in the historical timeline, the next thing that should be treated. 
And, and that's the reason I mentioned it. And as you all know, don't mention something if you're not prepared to do it yourself. <laughs> And, and so that's pretty much exactly how it happened. In sort of the space of five minutes, I found my, myself volunteering to do science, which is okay because it is a, a priori interest of mine, and uh, it gave me an excuse to dig even deeper. Stick with us. We'll be back after this brief word from our sponsor. We're moving into the holiday season, and what better time to plan for the gifts that you wish to give or the gifts you wish to put on your wish list. There's plenty to choose from at MX Publishing. Since we talked to you last, there are scores of new books available on the site. Things like The Valley of Fear, Black-Eyed Theater Script by Nick Lane, The Rediscovered Annals of Sherlock Holmes by Terry Gollidge, The English Garden Mystery, That's volume 11 of the McCabe and Cody series by our friend Dan Andreaco. And coming up in the weeks ahead, things like Sherlock Holmes and the Case of the Fateful Arrow by Daniel Victor, The Baker Street Archive by Mark Mower, The Hound of the Baskervilles, a Sherlock Holmes reader by Nick Rieke, and dozens and dozens more. Get on over to mxpublishing.com to check out what books you can put on your holiday shopping list today. Well, what was the path from that original idea to the structure of this book, which is really, you know, in a handful of great sections here, the section we've talked about science in Victorian England, and then into the scientific disciplines, which is, you know, how science is really different scientific disciplines are featured in the canon, and then science and fiction, which right. is uh, such a great section. How did how did that break down, that editorial focus develop? Well, be, after this was agreed upon, I had the luxury of time because uh, other things moved ahead of me in the queue, and as you might know, the uh, BSI Press has a... Uh, as a, a large ledger of a big time schedule, and and they could tell me that they just pushed. They said well, we pushed you back a year and a half. Okay, you know, and so that's that. And so I had the luxury of time because of the master schedule that the BSI Press has to think about this. And I wanted to make sure that I cast my net wide. I could have easily, for example, done it only have it in do it so that I only had chapters about disciplines okay first chapter chemistry second chapter biology and stuff like that and i realized that wasn't going to work because people didn't realize context and so i felt we had to have that first section science in victorian england that uh gave that context that at least people would would um uh, be, new, people who are new to the subject would would understand what was really being discussed in all these subsequent chapters and then i realized that um, that this, this section on literature makes sense because, again, I had the desire to cast my net wide, and and so uh, and I realized that some of the things I wanted to talk about were, you know, Doyle's uh, writings about science that weren't Sherlockian. Okay, and so uh, that led naturally uh, to some of these other topics. For example, everybody who knows Anastasia knows that she already has an interest in science. Uh, the romance of science. So it was an easy 
job to convince her that she should write an article about Sherlock Holmes in the romance of science because she, that's already close to her research area, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it, because I had the luxury of time, I had time to chat people up, talk to them, find out what they wanted to do, what could be done, what couldn't be done. And so uh, it, 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 it worked out very well. Uh, so I, I can't say I w- it was a single inspiration. It was just the um, fact of, of chatting this up with a lot of people, finding out what people thought they wanted to do, it, and the book organized itself after that. Well, there's a, a particularly arresting chapter title um, in here that one wouldn't normally associate with Sherlock Holmes. It's called Street Urchins Need Not Apply. So far, so good. Uh, but then the subtitle is Sherlock Holmes and the Art of Software Testing. <laughs> What's that all about, and how how did it come about? Well, I knew, um, first off, again, this comes from trying to cast my net wide. Uh, and I there's, of course, been people who've written about the Victorian precursors of computing. You know, uh, there's even been articles written about, you know, did, did Moriarty uh, have Babbage's engine and stuff like that, and and so that's that that sort of exploration had been done before, and and I knew that I could I could add a chapter about that, about um, you know, the some sort of tie-in like that. You know, there I mean there are books like Elementary Basic about Holmes Holmes using Babbage's engine and stuff like that. So I thought about that some more, and then. I ran into Melinda Carrick, and, and Melinda Carrick is a, a a remarkable person, and she's in the Baker Street Babes. And I said, you know, Baker Street Babes don't get invited to contribute to these article to these books very often. And I knew she was a software testing engineer, and I told myself, software testing is what? It's an exploration. It's a it's a detective thing. You have to detect the errors. You have to have a method of investigation and, 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 and so on and so forth. So I approached her and I said, could you write an article in which you take um, the uh, modern idea of, of software testing and, and find it an- analogs with the notion of detecting crime and, and just doing detection in general, okay, deduction in general. And, and she said, yeah, she would do it. And so I was very pleased to uh, connect some dots that way. That's fantastic. Now, what other surprises were in store for you as you uh, cast the net here? Well, I um, was able to find many people who had never written about Sherlock Holmes before or certainly were not considered um, even Sherlock Holmes adjacent. Okay, so yeah, I had, I, again, because I had the luxury of time, I, I was able to approach several people. Uh, the biggest get, so to speak, for this book was to get Bernard Lightman to contribute a chapter. Uh, Bernard Lightman is uh, past president of uh, the Victorian Science Society, or whatever it is. I can't remember the exact title. I apologize. But but he's, he's a, a big name in this field, and he knows Victorian science, the history of science, very, very well. He is a historian of science, and, and we'll, I thought it would be nice if I could get him to do that. And I did know that once at the um, Vermont conference, he had come down from Toronto and, and spoke. And so I said, well, if he spoke at one Sherlock Holmes meeting, maybe I can get him to contribute. And he and he did. Um, and this is a, uh, a really nice thing that he was able to to do that. I have to confess, I helped him a little bit. <laughs> 
That's great. No, I, no, I did. As I said, you may you have you have the skill set, but you there may not be easy for you to find the right quotes from the canon sure. about biology. Yeah. And so I said, I will just work up a um, you know three or four pages of quotes, just quoted text from the. I didn't editorialize or anything. I just quoted text. So I I I I. I, I siphoned all those off and, and sent them to him so that he could use those and incorporate them into his article. And that made it easier for him to say yes. And um, same, similarly, I got the, the weather chapter is from a non-Sherlockian. Um, and uh, I know that uh, he had, he has friends who are Sherlockians, and so they helped him a little bit with that. I didn't have to help him very much. So talk talk about that. That I've never really considered that. The, the chapter title is, It Was a Dark and Stormy Night, Sherlock Holmes, Meteorologist? Right. Well, they, he um, had written an article in a magazine called Weatherwise about 30 years ago. So I didn't even know if he was still alive. But I, I wrote to him anyway. I said, do you have anything else to say about Sherlock Holmes and weather? Now, he could have easily said no, but he had friends who were Sherlockians. And so apparently he went and chatted them up and said, what what else could I write about? Uh, and, uh, and they said, um, well, why don't you consider that um, the... Uh, Lone Star and the equinoctial gales that that took it out, oh. and 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 so once he had the idea, he took it bit in his mouth and he ran with it, and he consulted all of his friends in the uh, historical records on his on storms, and he got all the right facts and everything, and so he put it together, and so, so you know you just you just um, have to think that these people. Not necessarily people who come to the every BSI dinner. There are people out there who want to do this sort of thing. They they understand that it's fun, the same as we understand it's fun. And, and not everybody's going to um, understand it as well as we do, but they're there. And that's, the for me, the uh, takeaway from this whole book for people who are going to be doing similar efforts in the future. Don't just look at the list of BSI and say, is there a weather person in the in the BSI? That's just not the right way to have a successful effort. You know, you have to cast your net wider. Is there anything that's been done that might say that these are somehow adjacent and approach these people? The worst they could say is no. And uh, and I think the book has benefited by my having that attitude. And and I think other people would benefit from it too. I think that's, that's a really important uh, thing to, to kind of rest on here. Uh, Dana, because too often the world of Sherlockians is a fairly small and communal place. Everybody seems to know everyone else or, you know, be just a couple of steps away from each other. And yet, uh, when you go to the world at large, uh, pretty much everybody knows Sherlock Holmes. They may not know him as intimately and as in such detail as we do, uh, as your example with Lightman and searching out the quotes, but there's a passing familiarity. And I think for uh, our continued hobby to be successful, uh, it's necessary to reach outside of the realm of our own sphere of influence, our own sphere of knowledge, and to to find people that may have a tangential interest and kind of uh, bring them in a little closer. I agree entirely. So I hope there's a hope that um, side lesson isn't lost, and I'm glad we, I'm glad to have your platform to say that out loud. Yeah, absolutely. Wonder, one of the many great things about this book 
is the scope, you know, and we have alluded to it in this conversation of the topics and the authors and the writers. You have everything here and some very clever things, too, along the way. For example, Monica, Monica Schmidt contributed an article on mindfulness with the wonderful title, To Bet You Are Not Paying Attention. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, as an editor, I did think about changing that title. I'm uh, sure you did. Because, it's, because it is a little bit more um, um, playful than the other titles in the book. Yeah. But, you know, well, she's, she was being playful, and so why not? Yeah. I'm but it's a good you... article. It's, it's, a, it's a psychology article, but she didn't write an article on, on Sherlock Holmes. Is Sherlock Holmes a psychologist? You know, that, that's the yeah. easy way out in things like this, you know? Yeah. Uh, and she did it. She... she, she took a, uh, uh, an area that's fairly um, gotten some, some um, legs, so to speak, in the popular conception of psychology, this notion of mindfulness, and she um, put the scientific spin on it and, and saw, looked for examples in the canon. And uh, so I think she, you know, that's, that's the kind of cleverness of, 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 of avoiding the straightforward article uh, that... Uh, a lot of people do. I mean, I do it. I mean, a lot, if somebody asks me to write something and I'm not inspired, I'll, I'll create something in a workmanlike fashion, you know. But uh, when someone can be creative and and uh, take psycholo- the psychology aspect in a different direction, you know, you have to applaud that. Yeah, it's no, it's a good article. I'm glad you didn't change the title. And also, Mike Berdan, in his essay, has a very interesting conclusion in the end. He says, you know... Scientists in the canon, um, like many of the other professions in the cases of Sherlock Holmes, and in roughly equal proportions, scientists are the victims, the witnesses, the perpetrators of crime, and are no less predisposed in that latter direction than any other occupational category. And he says... You know, Holmes' very last words in active practice presage a dangerous new era of crime and criminals. That might just be a coincidence. But maybe it reflects a fear, conscious or otherwise, in the mind of that consummate Victorian, Dr. Watson, that the next crop of practitioners of the science of deduction, you know, will be forced to confront scientists gone diabolically wrong. Well, let me... That makes me think not only admiringly about Mike's essay, but also about this whole question of taking science seriously today and yep. pseudoscience and fake science and paying attention to science. So what's, what's your thinking about all that? Well, let me first say that the trope of a, the mad scientist is something that... Uh, is that something I'm happy the canon avoided. Okay, you, you, we certainly know that in the popular culture... The mad scientist is more likely, you know, a scientist is more likely to be the villain and, and therefore, quote-unquote, a mad scientist. Okay? That's the popular imagination. It's, it's not so clear that you're, if you meet a scientist, he's going to be the hero of the story. And, and we avoided all of that. And, and that's all good. And, uh, uh, and then what uh, Marshall pointed out is, is that the scientists aren't uh, in any way more likely to be villainous or otherwise they are they are more or less characters okay which is a little bit disappointing because we would like to have an essay that says the scientists were the heroes of all these stories but we can't have two heroes we have the scientist Sherlock Holmes who's the hero of the stories but uh, the scientists do make a a fairly wide a wide number of scientists make an appearance but 
as he points out, um, more often than not, uh, if you're counting, uh, you'd see that there's more people in the medical sciences than there are in the other sciences. But regardless, uh, Michael, I just want to commend him because when I put out the call for papers, he was the first person to respond. And he said, what do you want me to do? And I said, you know, can you write something about scientists in the canon? And he said, sure. And he had he came back to me a, a, a month later and said, do you know there aren't that many scientists in the canon? And there's a lot of doctors. And I said, you know, basically I said, you're a professional writer. I'm sure you can do something with that information. And he, of course, was... Uh, he wrote, he wrote a wonderful chapter. Michael Burdan more than anybody, excuse me, Marshall Burdan more than anybody else um, uh, introduced humor into his um, his chapter because that's just the way he is. Yeah, no, he I, perfect man for the job in that case, and that that actually uh, circles back to something I wanted to touch on, Dana, about uh, your last comment as we were talking about. Uh, Monica's playful subject uh, topic title. Uh, let's talk a little bit about science and playfulness. Uh, you know, we, we seem to think of science as very dry, as very, you know, this or that, yes or no, let's move on, let's collect our data, etc. But can you talk a little bit about the element of playfulness in science? Maybe it happens to intersect with, intersect with puzzles, your interest there. How, how does playfulness come into science? Well, playfulness comes into science. Um, I mean, it's a good question because I haven't thought about answering this in advance, but I'll give it a try. Playfulness comes into science because science is about the exploration of ideas. All right? Uh, science only advances because people come up with novel ideas. Okay? There's a lot of you know, grinding uh, in science, a lot of turning the crank. But for the most part, science progresses by by people making leaps, people seeing connections that weren't there before. They say, you have to have that kind of open-mindedness in order to make new scientific discoveries. And and uh, people who don't have it, you know, are, are just, you know, workaday scientists and they, 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 they will give you lab results, but they won't come up with a new theory. And so, so uh, there are many, many stories of, of uh, of how new ideas were were born uh, over time, and and almost always has to do with uh, uh, not necessarily standing on the shoulders of giants, but it has to do with um, looking at things in a new way. Fantastic. Um, one final question for you, Dana. Um, being someone who has this interest in Sherlock Holmes and has for a good 40-plus years, as well as being someone who practices in the field of computer science and mathematics, do you think in numbers or in words? I'm, um, I'm borderline ADHD, I think. Uh, for example, um, I can't remember your name unless I can see it spelled out in my head. Okay. All right. So I um, so that's basically how I work. I, I perhaps have a uh, a more 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 um, uh, more constrained uh, mind than other people might have. So I can't generalize. But no, I think very much in pictures uh, and uh, and 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 visually. Uh, then, um, so I have to visualize everything. When I write a computer program, I just stare at the white wall, a blank wall, until I completely write the code in my head, and then I just write it down immediately, first time. Okay, and so it's it's all about that kind of uh, 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 formation of ideas and, and working things out uh, that is um, 
is a mental exercise for me more than fascinating. Well, I think we call that neurodiverse. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the book is My Scientific Methods, Science in the Sherlockian Canon, uh, edited by Dana Richards. It's available from the Baker Street Irregulars Press. We'll have a link to it in our show notes, uh, and hopefully you can pick up a copy and read through this marvelous collection of essays yourself. Dana, thank you so much for joining us here on I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. Well, thank you for allowing me to, to uh, say some things that I didn't put in the book, but are, are, are helped explain the book to the listener. So I appreciate your giving me this opportunity. Every time you have the opportunity to speak to someone like Dana, you're just struck, at least I'm just struck, by how remarkable this community is and the community of people who've participated in this book. It's, I don't know that there's any equal to it anywhere, just in terms of intelligence and interest. And more to the point, good communication. You know, frequently among scientists, and Alan Alda was a big proponent of this, being able to communicate scientific concepts effectively and simply to an audience is alien to a lot of scientists, but not the people who've participated in this book. And just talking to Dana is great fun. Yeah. Uh, and, and uh, well, first of all, I'm a big fan of uh, Alan Alda and communication. And, of course, his, uh, <laughs> his book related to that is, if I understood you, would I have this look on my face? <laughs> uh, yeah. the, <laughs> Classic book. Um, but I love those challenges, too, you know, where you ask a bunch, school kids say, you know, how does fire work? And scientists have to give them a simple answer. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, and I think that's just it. It's uh, not the dumbing down, but at least the ability to speak in, in a common tongue. And I think that's what Sherlock Holmes has done for uh, many people over the ages. Is, is, is he took the complex he took the you know the seeming seemingly magical or even pseudoscience and managed to bring it down to a level where watson could understand and by virtue of watson as every man so could the rest of us so wonderful that sherlock holmes was ahead of his time in terms of scientific communication The first Sherlock Holmes parody was probably written in 1896, The Field Bazaar, by Arthur Conan Doyle himself. He knew laughing was good for you. That's why the Wessex Press continues the tradition with The True Adventures of Sherlock Holmes by Terence Faherty. It's a rare collection of Watson's early first drafts of the cases of Sherlock Holmes that will show you the truth behind the engineer's thumb and the strange insanity of General Waxbutton. Learn the actual facts behind the adventure of the notorious parasol chaser and astonish your friends when you tell them the man with the twisted lip actually struck it big as a part-time bustle fitter. Seven of these great stories have been published in Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine and four appear here for the very first time in this very first collection. Now is the perfect time for a comfortable chair and a long laugh. Get the true adventures of Sherlock Holmes at wessexpress.com today. 
That's right. It's everyone's favorite Sherlockian quiz show. It's Canonical Couplet, where we give you two lines of poetry, and we ask you to strain your noggin at the answer as to what it is that we're looking for. And if you were around here the last time in episode 252, you'll know that we gave you this clue. A comedy, a tragedy, a knighthood was declined. We learn that Holmes has memorized a catalog of crime. Uh, I'm almost <laughs> too, afraid, too afraid to ask, Bert. Do you know this canonical couplet? Of course. That's a great case. It's the one where Holmes foils a villain by going for a week without eating. And he has a grand meal, and he leaves Watson with the bill. And that's the case Watson called the dining detective missed it by that much <laughs> i'm sorry i'm so yeah you can hear we've got some new sound clips now to uh <laughs> queued up for every one of your wrong answers uh, <laughs> i'm actually looking forward to hearing them now so i can get through this catalog of sound effects um <laughs> no no that's not what we were going for um oh, i know no. shocking right but to help us out, I'm going to turn to our pal, Eric Deckers, who said, I've got it. I can name that couplet in three notes. It's the retelling of Sherlock Holmes with actress Carrie Underwood and Deborah Messing, each playing three separate roles. It's the adventure of the three Carrie and Debs. Oh, boy, Eric, you know what? <laughs> <laughs> Missed it by he's, that. Exactly. Wait, wait. <laughs> would he you says, believe? Uh, would you believe? He says the Hollywood Reporter just said the project has been put on hold. So it's more likely that the story is the adventure of the three Garadubs. Yes, yes, that is what we're looking for. And to see who else from your coterie is also eligible for the prize, we're going to pull out the big prize wheel and give it a spin. And here it comes, slowing down, landing on number 47. And that looks like it is why it's Carol Berger. Carol, congratulations. We will have a copy of, oh, what is it that we have a copy of? Um, oh, yeah, the, the Devil's Blaze, Bob Harris's book, uh, sent out to you. So congratulations on that. And uh, let's get into the next canonical couplet, shall we? An eerie case quite far from home with evil unrelieved, begins with the most surprising telegram Watson had received. If you know the answer to this canonical couplet, put it in an email, address the comment that I hear of Sherlock.com, and canonical couplet in the subject line. If you are among all of the correct answers and we choose you at random, you'll win. Yes, and we have a copy of My Scientific Methods for uh, our lucky winner this time around. That should be well worth the, uh, the price of participation <laughs> or the price of sitting through these wrong answers. <laughs> well, can you believe it? We've done it again, Bert. There's Thank goodness. Only two more episodes in this season. Oh, and then what do we get? 
Uh, then we get the next season. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> season 17, coming on pot in January. Oh, Santa didn't get my note yet. Oh, goodness, goodness. Yeah. Well, for our Patreon supporters, we know we always have extra goodies. We do have the show free of ads if you'd like to listen to it there. And, uh, well, we may have some other offerings by the end of the year. We'll see how this goes. I know we were, we were talking at one point about doing a, um, a live video presentation. Yes. Um, we'll have to see how this uh, how this comes about and to whom we will make it available. So stick around for that. Yeah, I need enough time to do my makeup. Let me know, would you? Oh, well, we've only got a month before the end of the year. Is that enough time? <laughs> I better get started now. Yeah. Where's my Where's my trowel? Hold on. <laughs> trowel and spackle. Everyone needs it. Yes. Ew. Well, this is the troweling Scott Monty. This is the spackled Burt Walder. And together we say the, the games, games of foot. <laughs> the, the games, games of foot. I'm afraid that in the pleasure of this conversation, I'm neglecting business of importance, which awaits me elsewhere. Thank you for listening. Please be sure to join us again for the next episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast dedicated to Sherlock Holmes. Goodbye, and good luck, and believe me to be, my dear fellow, very sincerely yours, Sherlock Holmes.